Welcome to episode 87 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Ari Schwartz. Uh, welcome, Ari. Thank you for having me. Uh, he is a former senior director for cybersecurity at the uh, National Security Council staff in the White House. Uh, Currently, uh, managing, managing director of cybersecurity services and policy at Venmo, which he uh, just started doing, uh, uh, and before that was uh, uh, doing a variety of cyber uh, policy jobs at the Commerce Department. Um, and I and tells me he is in fact getting more sleep now that he's left government and seeing his kids more too. So, uh, welcome to the private sector. Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe, uh, by Alan Cohn, formerly the head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of DHS policy, who's now of counsel at Steptoe, and by Maury Schenk, who's the former managing partner in our London office, uh, uh, now an advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues, and uh, also a private equity investor uh, and director of technology companies on his own. Uh, um, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, lots of news last week. Uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, CISA passed the Senate um, and uh, we will uh, talk about that, but I'm going to save that, and Ari and I will dig deep into that uh, during the interview. Uh, uh, so the other piece of news that we want to get started with uh, is the announcement, sort of a teaser, uh, from the European Commission saying, oh, you know that safe harbor thing. We uh, we finally we've already reached an agreement in principle, uh, more or less, with the Americans. Uh, uh, we'll let you know what what's in it shortly, um, which suggests that they haven't quite got an agreement, but um, they want to uh, get everybody thinking that an agreement is coming before January, when the Article 29 Working Party has threatened to bring the hammer down uh, on uh, U.S. companies that have been relying on the safe harbor. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, uh, do you think this is actually going to uh, solve the problems that the safe harbor's demise have created? I think we're a long way from a safe harbor 2.0. I think what you're referring to is the EU Justice Commissioner Vera Jourovo said early last week that there was agreement on principle on the new safe harbor, but by the end of the week she had sort of said, well, there's been progress and there's a lot to be dealt with yet. The tough issues including clarity needed on law enforcement access to communications, which is sort of the whole ballgame. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? It's, it's what's new. And uh, um, interestingly, she didn't say that about intelligence access. Uh, she said it about law enforcement, uh, which is a little odd, um, uh, but I suspect tells us that uh, um, the uh, intelligence side of the house was prepared for this and already had a a variety of um, uh, representations ready to make. Uh, um, and since the uh, 
uh, European Court of Justice didn't actually understand 702. It was pretty easy to say, uh, yeah, that thing you condemned, we're not doing that. Uh, um, law enforcement access is bound to be harder because the uh, uh, the Justice Department, uh, as Jason will uh, tell us, uh, doesn't like to give up stuff when they think it was somebody else's scandal that got them into this fix. Uh, um, so my guess is that um, the negotiations are going to be tough uh, and are coming up on the the holidays, so I'm not sure how uh, uh, quickly this is all going to get done. Yeah, I, I think the law enforcement access comment could be shorthand for the whole law enforcement intelligence access issue, because as you and I were debating today, Stuart, you know, the, who's the decider? It's a little unclear. The commission technically has authority, uh, who are the European bureaucrats, to adopt a new safe harbor, but in light of the court decision, it's going to be hard for them to do on their own. And if new legislation is required in the European Parliament, there's a lot of uh, very left-wing privacy voices that are up in arms about Snowden and will not drop the intelligence access. Well, they 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 they, they yeah. voted to give him uh, uh, asylum uh, and to make sure that he wasn't extradited. Uh, um, it was a close vote, but uh, it gives you a feel for. Uh, what this European Parliament is like. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. The, the the structure here is interesting. The original structure for the safe harbor, as I understood it, was to say, well, you have to be adequate, and we are going to make an adequacy determination on a company-by-company basis. Uh, if you join the safe harbor as a company, then you as a company are adequate uh, because you're obeying European law even once you get the data into the United States. But it was very much the commission simply saying, we're going to call them uh, adequate. Uh, uh, it wasn't, as far as I remember, a formal agreement that went to the European Parliament for approval. Uh, but now that uh, the European Court of Justice has raised questions about the commission's authority under the director, they'd really have to do a formal agreement, I think, uh, and that means they'd have to take it to the European Parliament uh, um, in order to overcome the legal barriers the ECJ raised up, and I'm just not sure uh, how that gets done in any timely way. Yeah, I agree, and I, I thought even before the Schrems decision uh, that this was going to be a difficult issue for the court, this company-by-company company adequacy, and they pretty much rejected that because they've turned it into, you know, adequacy of government access to communications under law. You know, the only way to do that would be to carve U.S. law out of a U.S. safe harbor, which you can't do. So I just don't see an obvious way forward, particularly where you've got, you know, the the Germans um, saying things like, you know, even under more robust regimes that preserve European jurisdiction, like the model clauses and binding corporate rules, that they are skeptical of the transfers. Uh, I, skeptical in the cases of model clauses and, and no more binding corporate rules approval. So, so you can understand it's a, it's that. It's a hard road ahead. Right, you can understand that. If, if you think that, uh, <clears throat> you know, if we had a law that said uh, as soon as European data gets over here, we're going to rape and pillage it so that we can send everybody to Guantanamo, um, you could see that they would, consider that inadequate, and if it's inadequate for the safe harbor, it's also inadequate uh, 
uh, to transfer it under the uh, model clauses or the binding corporate rules because none of those things offer a guarantee against uh, the uh, uh, application of U.S. law. I agree absolutely, which is why it's a hard path. Although we do have some different voices in the U.K. where I live, the information commissioner has said uh, the safe harbor remains in force. Um, not that it's valid to show adequacy, but he's pointed out that you know the Department of Commerce is continuing to run the safe harbor program, and it has some privacy value to make those commitments. And he not ruling out the uh, possibility that they could, for U.K. transfers, say safe harbor compliance is still enough. So we have a real spread of views that are going to be hard to get a unified European view. Well, I, uh, I, frankly, I, I don't give a damn about a European unified view. That's only going to be bad for us. Uh, we might be better off working this out country by country, uh, um, and the countries that refuse to uh, grant uh, uh, an adequacy determination are basically saying to U.S. companies, um, either... Uh, uh, store your data in our country or take your job someplace else. Um, and I'm not sure that's uh, an outcome that uh, many of those countries are going to be completely comfortable with, no matter what their DPAs think. Uh, the rest of the uh, government is going to be much less enthusiastic about that outcome. I think that's right. I mean, the U.S. companies that have customers in those countries aren't going to be uh, end the process um, data in the states as part of some kind of unified global service. I'm advising um, a couple of companies in that position aren't going to be very happy with that outcome. But no, um, maybe that's the way we've got to go. My guess is that with those guys, you're going to write uh, a very uh, forthcoming uh, consent statement about the state of U.S. law. Um, a, and ask for consent from your customers. Uh, and it's true, uh, uh, it's hard to make consent work, especially in the employment context, but uh, maybe also if you're a big um, uh, net services company. But, um, you know, it's better than nothing. And again, uh, if they say consent is not good enough, they're really saying we don't want our uh, citizens to be able to use your service, and that may not be all that popular either. Yes, I, I agree with everything you said. I mean, I, just so consent, I think it works for, you know, like you said, it works for a lot of B2B services. Uh, it's questionable for employment, although okay in some contexts, and very difficult for mass consumer services. Yeah. Yeah, the, the problem here is, unlike some of the other regimes where I think the U.S. government has, has effectively dealt with on a country-by-country -country basis, the, the lines are just blurrier here. Um, you're gonna, it's going to be harder to play the, the, the outsides against, against the middle. Um, and especially, you know, going to, to what you were saying, and the Germans have already said in the, in the white paper that they're going to even look at consent, uh, with, uh, you know, with a sharp eye and, and, and think about it only in, uh, in exceptional circumstances. Yeah, but I, you know, frankly, I, while you can say all of these other clauses and provisions, uh, and derogations don't work when you're talking about U.S. law, if you tell people this is what the U.S. government could do with your data, do you consent to it? Uh, 
at least at the uh, ideological level, it's sort of hard to say, well, that's not a consent. You can, you can whine about how voluntary it really was and about you, you didn't offer me a choice that I like, but it, it, is a, it is a consent. That might be harder to sell to the uh, European Court of Justice than that uh, uh, U.S. law should be ignored in the context of model uh, clauses. Well, okay, and I, I, I can't help noticing that uh, uh, we had one story today that said uh, safe hard dem- harbor demise deals blow to FTC authority. And I thought of that famous <clears throat> New York Times uh, headline, uh, uh, World to End Women and Children Hit Hardest. Uh, uh, the, um, the idea that in the middle of this disaster we should be mourning the loss of FTC authority strikes me as completely wrong-headed, but, you know, not completely untypical of the FTC. Uh, well, that was Commissioner, that was Julie Brill saying, you know, that um, the FTC wasn't able to police the, uh, you know, uh, protect European citizens' privacy, or protect European citizens' data in the States anymore. So I think she was doing some lobbying for a fix to the safe harbor. Uh, that that makes sense. And, of course, from the FTC's point of view, a fix is exactly what they want. Uh, I suspect the safe harbor is going to lose a lot of its members because uh, you're just uh, put, painting a target on your back and, and you're getting nothing for it except FTC investigations on top of DPA investigations. So probably doesn't make sense to stay in if you don't think it's going to work. Okay. Um, so Apple and the Justice Department are going back and forth about whether uh, the government can order Apple to decrypt a phone and the uh, which you might have thought was something that had been resolved technologically by uh, Apple making it impossible for themselves to uh, decrypt a phone but this is an old iPhone and it could be decrypted to, um, but as we've mentioned on earlier shows uh, uh, the uh, magistrate uh, magistrate Orenstein uh, uh, jumped in to say hey wait a minute this all Ritz Act thing uh, I'm not sure it really gives me author- the authority to order uh, Apple to do this, and I'd like Apple to brief the case. Uh, Jason, uh, uh, lots of developments since then. Uh, uh, Where does it stand? Well, as is usually the case in these disputes, the outcome of the dispute will have no impact on the individual case of the individual (laughs) defendant. In this case, in most cases, including one we'll talk about in a little bit later in the show, it's because of the good faith exception. In this case, it's because the defendant pled guilty. Apparently, he got tired of waiting, and his trial date was looming. Uh, and with the credit for acceptance of responsibility at stake, he just took the plea. Um, so the defendant in this case, to recap for those who are uh, uh, not as familiar with the case, it's a meth conspiracy case that was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. And the, the government seized and got a search warrant to search uh, the defendant's iPhone 5S, which ran iOS 7. And as you said, as you alluded to, in the more recent updates of iOS from 8 and higher, uh, the encryption is done in a way that, that Apple cannot uh, break uh, the passcode, even pursuant to a court order. But prior to iOS 8, it was routine for Apple to do so in response to court orders, which were routinely issued under the All Writs Act. And in this case, Apple uh, decided to push back. And the, the court, as you said, asked Apple to, to weigh in on the question. Actually, I think it went, went the other way around. Apple was just, you know, sitting there, and the magistrate said, hey, you don't really want to do this, do you? Yeah, right. Well, that's. I think it's fair to say that the magistrate gave them a little bit of, a, of an inch, and they, and, and, uh, and they took a mile. So as soon as they had the invitation, they jumped in. And 
uh, and they were what they were asked to weigh in on is whether it was feasible, uh, and if so, whether it was unduly burdensome. They had to acknowledge it was feasible because it was an earlier version of iOS, but they argued that it was burdensome both because of the time and resources necessary to actually uh, access the phone, the possibility somebody ha- someone might have to testify about it, the growing number of requests of this nature, and uh, and the potential reputational harm if Apple were perceived by its customers as complicit in, in government access to data without clear legal authority. And uh, and as you said, there, the, the case will ultimately rise and fall, and there, there still will be a decision. It just won't be necessarily expedited because the trial date uh, has, is, is not going to be relevant anymore. The case will rise and fall on the question of the scope of the All Writs Act and whether uh, Congress considered and decided not to um, uh, create the authority for the government to do this or whether the All Writs Act is truly being used here to fill a gap in statutory authority. So uh, just a question of timing. Uh, uh, the government said it's not moved because he's going to be sentenced and we'd like to use this in our sentencing. Uh, uh, what, uh, uh, when, when is he going to be sentenced? Is that, is that a certain uh, or relatively certain uh, time frame? Well, it's typically 60 to 90 days following the conclusion of the, of the guilt finding, in this case the guilty plea. Um, and although that date always could be moved back, it's rarely moved earlier, but it could certainly be moved back. My sense is, since, as you noted, Judge Ornstein is the one who, who decided to make this uh, an issue, um, uh, I, I suspect he will figure out a way to make it relevant, to, you know, to make it not moot. Um, but it does highlight that, you know, because we've been talking for, about going dark for a while, and, and we've talked in recent shows about the fact that the White House has decided, among three options, all of which called for no legislation, they decided to pick the um, yeah, to, to decide not to seek legislation. Um, and it really puts the government in a box uh, because it either the government can try to sue providers when they don't comply or they can try to use the All Writs Act and whatever um, other uh, judicial authority they think they can cobble together to try to get uh, providers to comply. But if there's no new legislation and if the tools they have to seek compliance and assistance from providers the existing tools are not going to be enforced, then it really does put the government in a, in a bit of a box. Yeah, I, I you know, I used to joke that um, uh, South Carolina's role in federalism was to take perfectly good um, principles uh, to extremes that no one could justify, starting with Fort Sumter, uh, and moving on to all of its um, uh, federalism fights with the federal government. It seems to me the Southern District of New York is playing that role on um, uh, tech versus uh, uh, criminal law matters. They could have said to the judge, yeah, he pleaded guilty, never mind, uh, and we wouldn't have this fight. They, they, they're eager for this fight, even though it's pretty clear they're going to lose at the um, magistrate level. Well, but it's not so clear that they would lose at a higher level. And this is the Eastern but, but District. We have, we have to give credit where credit is due. This is the Eastern District. But oh, okay. the, the Southern District, you know, Judge Gorenstein, no relation to Judge Orenstein, um, Judge Gorenstein in the Southern District actually reached the opposite conclusion in the Southern District case. And now you've got a, a split between Southern and Eastern magistrates. And you're right, it will be moot long long uh, uh, before there, there were ever to be an appeal heard. But I think the, the government wants this fight because I think that ultimately... And they want to lose it publicly and then have it mooted out so they can't appeal it. That, that makes no sense to me. Well, I think they. I think there is, uh, you know, there are kind of two agendas here. One is the agenda of the immediate case, and the other is the larger um, sort of legal and political issue of government access to data. And I think that whether they win or lose, um, there is benefit to them because if they lose, it helps them highlight for lawmakers the limits of their authority and the need for some some additional intervention. Um, 
Well, they certainly got Apple to say some pretty extravagant things. I mean, Apple said, you are conscripting us. I can't believe that you're asking us to do that. We're not a phone company. We're not a public utility. We should just, you know, um, we should just tell you to go shove it because uh, it's, it's like, it's like asking a, a, a safe company to open a safe. Uh, my, my reaction to that was, well, yeah, we would. <laughs> I, I was surprised at how responsive to those arguments Judge Ornstein appeared to be. Well, he, he, I think uh, since they were the arguments he asked them to make, I'm not su- at all surprised. Uh, okay, um, uh, speaking of other uh, 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 litigation issues, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Second Circuit has decided that it's not going to block the last month of the NSA 215 surveillance program. Uh, um, uh, Alan, did you take a look at the opinion in that case? So, I, I mean, it's a it's a classic example of um, <laughs> why would we why not? It's kind of the opposite example of why go back for one one more bite at this apple. Um, in, in a sense, what you know, the the Second Circuit. Said, you know, this, this is getting to the, to the constitutional issues. We don't have time to consider this. There's no reason to. Congress is pretty explicit. There's a 180 day transition period. This matter is over. So the, uh, it does seem to me that, you know, no private litigant would have brought this case. You have to be ideologically committed and determined to make as much law as possible. But in this case, I think it was the ACLU, uh, wiped out the only good law they had apart from Judge Leon and his exclamation points. Uh, uh, this, there was a determination in the Second Circuit that this program was illegal, which they can no longer say. There's been a determination that it is legal, that it's been uh, justified, uh, you know, pretty obvious, but nonetheless that it's been justified by Congress's debate over the issue. So uh, the ACLU not, not only spent a bunch of money litigating this, they spent a bunch of money where it was almost certain they were going to lose, and they did, and they wiped out whatever victory they'd achieved earlier in the Second Circuit. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting decision, and, and, and in a sense, um, they might have been better uh, Trying to pull more, more, uh, more dicta out of Judge Leon before this whole thing was over. Well, I, I'm sure he's got he's got the dicta machine uh, cranked up and rolling, uh, uh, and we will see it before November 27. Although we're getting pretty close. Um, uh, all right, uh, and uh, another court of appeals decision, or at least one in the offing, end uh, bank review uh, in the Fourth Circuit of uh, another cell phone location data warrant. Now, I've forgotten which. Which data warrant this was? Is this the the uh, uh, cell uh, uh, sector records? This is historical cell sector oh, records. Oh, this is yeah. This yeah. was just dead wrong. So no, not it's not surprising they took it. Well, this this case in the Fourth Circuit has been a ping pong match <clears throat> over the legal standards that that apply to historical cell site data. The trial court uh, in Baltimore said that a search warrant was not required. A twenty seven oh three D order was adequate, which is what, by the way, the statute makes clear. Um, uh, the, the panel said that the search warrant was required, but because of the good faith exception, the evidence uh, should have been admitted or should not have been suppressed. Uh, and now the, the en banc Fourth Circuit will review. Um, there's a split now between the fourth, the panel on the fourth, and, uh, and the 11th and fifth circuits, which have said that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy and that because the, the third party doctrine, no warrants required. And there's a, a cert petition pending from uh, that, uh, the en banc 11th Circuit opinion. 
Um, so there is at least a, a better chance of, of uh, Supreme Court review unless the no, I would have the, the thought this actually makes it less. Now, the other way. now it's taken in bank. It, it's a signal that the uh, panel decision may not stand. Well, I, I, w- I think the smart money would be on on the en banc fourth doing the same thing as the en banc eleventh, which would of course moot any argument for Supreme Court review. Um, it is noteworthy that that the Fourth Circuit, uh, you know, very fairly quickly acted on the government's request to have it taken. Did not act on the defendant's request to have. Uh, 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 review of, of the, the parts of the decision that went against him. But I think the Fourth Circuit, although this is not your father's Fourth Circuit or even your older brother's Fourth Circuit, but it is, uh, I, I think, it, like I said, the smart money is on the Fourth Circuit coming out the same way as the Eleventh. Th- this is related to the other issue we talked about before, though, because one of the, uh, you know, the government's in this situation where the building blocks it uses to get search warrants, to get probable cause, in criminal cases are under attack. The third party doctrines under right. attack left and right. This, you know, used to be, uh, you know, it's been a given for a while that the government would get a warrant to, to ping your phone to get, uh, geolocation data, precision location data. And it's become essentially the rule because of the split among the, the courts in the country that you, the better practice is to get a warrant if you want prospective cell tower data. Right. But it has not until recently been even remotely an issue. Uh, that a 2703D order was enough to get historical cell tower data. And now, of course, that's under fire as well. Um, and this broader attack on the third-party doctrine and on the government's ability to get this data, that it needs to actually build up the probable cause, makes it that much more frustrating when the government does build up the probable cause, ser- serves a warrant only to find out that it can't be executed because of technology issues. So I think, uh, uh, you know, I think you've got some very frustrated uh, investigators and prosecutors and uh, you know, and, and their increasing inability to get this data that is less precise, that is, you know, right. for 30 or 40 years has been recognized as not covered by the Fourth Amendment, uh, I, I think is, is really making their lives much more difficult. So they might have been smart just to leave it and seek cert, because um, this is, if, if there's a third-party doctrine where you ought to win... It ought to be cell tower uh, data. Yeah, although in this in this Supreme Court, in, with the things that were said about the third party doctrine in the Jones case, I don't know that I'd want I to take my I, chances I, with I, this I, group I, of nine. Well, well you, you're going you're gonna to take your chances. Somebody's going to case get a case up there. Uh, I'll take my chances with a full Fourth Circuit, even this Fourth Circuit, than I would the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not as convinced. I I think these guys understand that uh, if they knocked over this, um, the third party doctrine, uh, it would open. Hundreds, probably, certainly dozens of new uh, issues for them to resolve with absolutely no guidance whatsoever other than their gut feeling about what's creepy. Uh, and uh, not that's not a particularly attractive uh, uh, outcome. Um, so I, they might have been better off taking it up on one where Congress had clearly thought about it and approved it, uh, um, uh, that would be their best bet. But, uh, uh, okay, um, uh, then let's move on to uh, to our uh, discussion with Ari about the other big news of last week, which was the uh, passage of CISA by, uh, is that how you pronounce it, Ari? CISA, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I've heard other people uh, pronounce it other ways. Yeah. I, I'm... I'm um, intensely aware that uh, when Kalia passed and I was the only person talking about it, I talked about it as Kalea for years. Uh, and then uh, I, uh, other people just, uh, called it uh, Kalia and it stuck. So, um, so CISA passed. This means there is now information sharing um, bills that have passed both the House and the Senate. Uh, and they do... 95% the same 
thing. Uh, and uh, um, why don't you walk through, I assume you worked on this when you were at the White House, uh, if you want to walk through the basics of what the overall goal here is that would be useful. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. So, <laughs> um, and uh, it, so let, let me uh, just give the broad overview of of where the where there's similarity. So, uh, the, the the main goal is to offer liability protection for companies in sharing uh, cybersecurity indicators or cybersecurity incident information. And and the main reason for this is because uh, there has been a uh, for a number of years a push to get more information shared, both among companies, so that they can get real-time information um, from their competitors or from uh, people so in I, other I, sectors. I always, you know, and this is something that lots of people in the government talk about, information sharing, but it's really very specific kinds of things. There's The goal is that when... A piece of malware is sent to you from a particular um, IP address or from a particular uh, uh, email address. That that email address, that IP address, gets shared instantly with as many people, as many companies as possible, so they can all, because since they're all going to get the same uh, malware from the same source, so they can start blocking it right away. Right. So you so- only get one byte, and as soon as you're caught. You're locked out of everybody's uh, uh, system at the same time. The, the real long-term goal is to automate that, yes. right? So right now, a lot of it happens where uh, it, information comes in, someone ana- does analysis of it, it, strips out, makes a signature, and sends it out. The goal would be to try and make it so that the, the, you can get information immediately, and it goes out to folks immediately at the edge of the, at the far edges of the network. Now, the, the the one liability that I actually am familiar with here is that uh, maybe there's two. Uh, one liability is there was a ill-considered privacy act from the 80s that said um, certain companies, electronic service providers and uh, the like, cannot share data with the uh, U.S. government or with any government without a subpoena. Uh, and obviously, we're not going to do subpoenas for every IP address, and it, it wouldn't work anyway. So uh, that had to be overridden. There's also some, in, in terms of monitoring uh, intrusions, uh, um, uh, uh, Two-party consent states or all-party consent states that say you can't wiretap unless everybody on the uh, phone call knows you are doing it and consents. Uh, there could have been an application of those laws to people who are doing monitoring of networks. Uh, uh, and so those in, are those are the two those are the two big problems. The, right? the, the two biggest ones, that, but there are there's a cascading number of other ones that are real or imagined. Um, around this, so um, one that had come up a lot was antitrust law, oh, um, which uh, we pushed back on with this when I was in the administration with uh, DOJ guidance and FTC guidance. Uh, but people still raise it to yeah, this day. No. Um, and then there's also uh, things like HIPAA and sector, very very sector specific laws, which probably don't apply. I'm not a lawyer, right. so but I am. But yeah, I leave it to you to, to give your interpretation. But Probably don't apply, but some people have read in that it could apply. So, so with, with, with that, the the fundamental principle of this is to say you can share your, this stuff. You can do certain things, notwithstanding any other law. The magic phrase appears in both of these clauses, and that's probably what got the privacy groups goat more than anything is that uh, they were basically having a law 
a privacy law overridden in this very sweeping way. And, and once that happened, they were never going to like this bill. Uh, and they've demonstrated pretty consistently that uh, uh, any weapon they can use to beat this law with, they will they will use. Um, but the things that, that can be done, notwithstanding any other law, are information sharing of certain cybersecurity threat indicators, uh, and um, and then um, use of defensive measures and monitoring of networks. Are those basically the three things? Yes, those are basically, that basically. Um, and let's, let's think of, about this if we could from the point of view. Well, first, I guess I ought to ask, where are the differences that you see between the House and the Senate bills, uh, that are going to have to go to, uh, conference? Uh, so the, the differences are really in the weeds, but there, some so. of them are pretty, uh, yeah. important differences, even though they're deep in the weeds. So, uh, the House bills generally have much um, which what we consider to be broader liability protections than the Senate does. Okay. Um, the Senate Senate has more narrow for, for in, in the way that companies would look at in, it. In what um, way? It, uh, where did they narrow this? I, 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 there was some. I, I, the, the one thing I have focused on is what something I call the privacy tax, which is the obligation, the privacy obligations, the new ones that are imposed on companies if they want to take advantage of this, and they they have to screen what they send to sharing. So the Senate focuses on providing liability and protections for the act of sharing itself. Right. Right? Whereas the House provides broader liability for acting on it, for... Oh, yes, yes, um, and for for failing to act on it. Failing to act on it for... Um, the, you know, anything short of willful misconduct in the space. So it is, um, you're talking about, and there's two house bills and they both do it differently too. Right. So, uh, but, but it is basically a house and senate difference. And one of the main reasons for that is because the house judiciary committee wanted jurisdiction over these bills and, and they were told no, but then they were told you have to have input from, you that, that the other committees had to have input from, House Judiciary and how they did their liability protections. So, ah, and so they wrote the more uh, uh, lawyerly, uh, uh, arguably, uh, uh, the limitations on liability or things that that uh, covered a lot of other things that you might think of if you were a lawyer, but that probably weren't top of mind. Exactly. People doing exactly. It. Yeah. Well, then also, I mean, to go back to what uh, what Ari said, and it's 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 telling about the the liability concerns, real or imaginary. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes to kind of what is the purpose of this this effort? Because if you read it on its face, it's a pretty narrow activity. If you read to this question on the li- the scope of the liability protection, really gets to what are you trying to do? Are you trying to set up a na- the just the narrow piece of the information sharing? Uh, you know, activity, or are you trying to incentivize the broader activity of, you know, the broader cybersecurity? And, and, and you'll remember the, the White House took a position in 2011 on um, the, where they stood on these issues, and the, a bill that was out at that time called CISPA, which is a precursor to these bills, and said there are three concerns. One is the privacy protections aren't strong enough in in CISPA. Number two, that the, that the information is not going through a civilian portal, and therefore we wouldn't be able to do as the kind of oversight we would need to be able to do for that information coming in. And number three was that the t- liability protections are not targeted enough. Um, now, the White House has supported these bills, so you, you assume that they have moved far, at least close enough to um, to addressing those issues. Um, 
so they'll way. they'll be weighing in on the um, in the conference to try to lean <laughs> to push um, the provisions closer to the statement of administrative position that they had back then. I think that's pretty clear. Yes, and um, and so will that potentially restrict the House language so that there's less likely to be immunity for what you don't do or for uh, some of the other activities that are now covered by the House well, law? It's interesting because, I mean, so you, you, you could think of that in the, in the liability context, but in, then you look at some of the provisions in uh, some of the some of the house bill the, in, in different parts of the different house bills on the privacy protections, and some of those are clearly uh, broader mm-hmm. broader privacy protections than the privacy protections in the Senate bill. So that it goes uh, it goes in the other direction there. So I think that there are some parts of different bills that um, the administration is going to like more than the other. Um, this, the house bills also have a clearer um, they're, they're written in a very clear way, where the Senate bill is sort of. Uh, uh, Byzantine, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in figuring out its structure. Um, I think the Senate bill generally maps more closely to the original administration proposal, so therefore they're probably going to lean in that direction, but, um, there are some benefits to some of the House bills too, so it's going to be interesting to see how they, 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 what they end up doing. So, um, from the point of view of companies, it's now at the point where you can be reasonably sure there will be a bill. You can be reasonably sure what it's going to say. As you say, it, it's, um, uh, the differences are really in the weeds. Uh, uh, and some of them may be important, but on the whole, uh, businesses ought to be able to decide now what the opportunities are here. Uh, and um, clearly, if you're an electronic service provider or ISP, you can now say, well, my reasons for not joining an information sharing arrangement that included the government are gone um, or largely gone, and so I can contemplate doing more sharing with the government. Uh, um, Assuming that it's... Liability that's holding you back, right? So that in some, I mean, we are. There are many companies that I've spoken to directly where I feel absolutely they will share now right. because that was really only the only thing holding them back was concern over the Electronic Communications Privacy Act or some similar law. Um, on the other hand, there are some companies where they're concerned about just what's going to happen if I share this information with someone and it gets out or some, you know, broader piece, even though they have the, the, the organizations we're sharing with have very clear rules about confidentiality. Um, it's just not worth it to us. So um, there's only so much that liability if, protection if you, can if, do if you, if you, if you don't, don't want to share. Uh, and we uh, experienced that, Alan and I did uh, at DHS when we set up all these uh, ISACs, uh, and people had dozens of reasons why they didn't really want to do it, and and I, I uh, likened that to the uh, story of the king who said to the uh, suitor for his uh, daughter's hand, well, you know, go to the far mountains and bring me the head of the ogre. And to his surprise, the guy comes back with the head of the ogre. He says, um, uh, go in the other direction all the way and bring me back the head of a dragon. Uh, and and uh, these guys said, well, we need a FOIA exemption. We need a FACA exemption. We need all of these special rules. And DHS actually went out and got legislation that adopted that, that provided uh, all of the exemptions they needed, and most of them said, uh, "Well, um, oh, antitrust—that's a—that's an objection too." Uh, or what about our liability? So, if you don't want to share, 
right. all you have to do is uh, hint here. I do you, think this lays that bare. Yeah. More, that, that even more be. so than the work that you did and that right. we did following up on that work. So, uh, um, in the administration. So I, I, and then I think that's helpful for future uh, moving forward on this. But issue. is there a reason to do it? Does this actually change? If, if you wanted to, is there something that industry wanted to do that it can do now that it couldn't do before? Is there a real advantage? It seems to me maybe there is, but... I think there are a couple things. So first of all, as I said, there were some companies where there definitely clearly was some law that was holding them back. So that's number one. Number two, since the goal is automated sharing, right, and um, it, you know, we've gotten, we've made significant progress right. in the standards for automated sharing and the, the technologies around automated sharing in the space. Now, Folks can just put their information in into the into the fields that are laid out in this in, in the in these uh, new technologies that are that are out there, and that information will be shared, and they don't have to worry that they may have violated something mm-hmm. right by following the basic protocol there. So uh, that I think is extremely helpful. I think that will um, get information where it needs to be better, faster, and will also make sure that it's the, the right kind of information that can be helpful um, to. To practitioners in the field, so uh, I think that those are all positive things. Um, it's the reason that uh, you know I push to support this uh, as well. So, so uh, uh, Alan, I know you have thought a lot about ISAOs or the, what used to be ISACs, but now are ISAOs, Information Sharing Advisory and analysis, a- analysis organizations. To be, to be clear, ISAOs are, the, are what's in law. Because right. under the DHS Act, it, it, uh, ISAs are codified. ISACs were in executive order, so okay. you, you know it, it does help make this distinction between the 16 critical infrastructure sectors and something that's broader than that. But it's also tied to some kind of legislation as well. So, do, do you see people creating ISAs as a result of this legislation, and to to get the benefit of the liability protections? Well, that's the thing. Is it still seems that we're kind of walking around in a in a in a bit of a circle around the point that that you made about what's the what's the return for this? There, I think that the the executive order on ISAs was useful because it made a declarative statement of policy that it is okay to go beyond one sector, one ISAC, um, and to encourage uh, businesses in sectors where an ISAC really hadn't come together. Uh, or it was not meeting the needs of all of the members of, of the sector to say, you know, go out and, and, and create more. Um, but, but there's still this, this reluctance that you see, I think, in the executive order, um, and that we're, we're kind of talking about in, in the context of the legislation, uh, about is this something that everybody must do? Is this something that, that we think everybody should do? Or is this something that is available to people if they, if they want it? Yeah, in the administration's proposal, we did, explicitly link ISAOs to this uh, this mm-hmm. concept and basically say this is something people should do. Yes, and right? It- um, and there was pushback from industry on that because I think because they didn't want to be tied to saying uh, well, this process for creating, we don't know what this process for creating standards is going to look like in the end. We're supportive of that. We're supportive of the, the legislation, but let them go their own course and then we can tie them together in time. So I think we still would need to see how those link up down the so, road. So, I, I mean, I can see that, that if you're in the financial services industry and you're already sharing and you're moving as in a reasonably prompt way toward electronic sharing, uh, um, building on some of the things that DHS has done and also some of the things the FSISAC has done, then it makes sense to say, well, I want a 
bill that will give me as much protection as I can for doing what I'm already doing. Uh, and, and so that's, that is in addition to the people who truly had a uh, legal disability uh, on sharing. Uh, um, and so those are, uh, the, Com- the, the Chamber of Commerce supported this pretty aggressively, and I'm assuming it was those two uh, industries that must have driven it because nobody else, it seems to me, it, it, there might be some advantages. Well, in there were 55 trade associations that backed this okay. up, and it, basically every, all of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, trade associations all backed up, and then like the retail sector, um, you know, hospitality, etc., the ones that are going to have their own ISOs, right? Um, were supportive of this too. So uh, I think it was it was pretty broad support, and I, in, in some ways that's where. The privacy advocates went wrong in this was that they weren't, you know, these, they, these folks built up support long ago and then they try to push back on the tech sector to say the tech sector, you should be against this, but there's, there's a whole bunch of other people. 55 trade associations are already in favor of this, and right? The, so. The privacy groups, you know, it's, they're the cherry on the top of opposition to legislation. They really have not stopped a bill yet on their own. They can make it controversial, but only if they've got real industry backing are they going to be able to stop this. As, and I thought that demonstrated itself here. It was like 70 plus votes for this, uh, when it finally, uh, uh, was voted on. Just Despite the fact that there wasn't a single privacy group that had said anything other than this is this is the end of the world, uh, um, it showed up just uh, how uh, they're a, they're a little like uh, some senators whom I will not name, whose natural base seems to be the press and who do really well in the press, but uh, uh, can't actually move votes uh, in Congress because nobody pays attention to them uh, except when, when they're quoted in the press. I, I suspect that's what's going on with the privacy groups. Uh, um, so do you see any obstacle to getting this done and past? Is there any reason to think that it will run into more trouble? I doubt the Well, what's Senate, interesting but... is they're talking about doing a real conference committee. I mean, oh, yeah. We don't have many real conference <laughs> committees anymore. I, have, so, have you seen one since you, while you were at the White House? There was, there was not one on issues that I worked yeah, on. I don't, I don't for think certain, there have been. You know, yeah. so um, that it, uh, it's extremely rare, so that we don't know what will come of that and who will the, who the, uh, well, they've got a name, they've got a name conferees. Yeah. And, and so it, and we'll, it will push it into next year, according to yeah. the chairs of the relevant committee. It'll be so. fun. It'll be the regular order for yeah, a change. Yeah, uh, so uh, it, three inside baseball things. Um, uh, who has jurisdiction over this law? Is this going to be one where DHS has, or sorry, Homeland Security in the house and uh, intelligence in the Senate have uh, uh, oversight responsibility for this law, or it- I think we're going to have to see how the final version plays out because the the House Intel bill was written so that they would have jurisdiction. Right. The House Homeland bill was written so that they would have jurisdiction. We have to see how, what that what the final version looks like in the Senate. It's clear that the Senate Intel would, um, but and and the uh, at least one of the bill, I think the House bill tinkers with the um, Center for uh, uh, Threat Integration, uh, Cyber Threat Integration, uh, um, which the president stood up uh, with a presidential directive. Uh, it says, you know, you can't have more than 50 people in it, and it has to do certain kinds of things. Uh, um, do you think that's going to be a serious problem from the administration's point of view? Uh, they like the idea of the fact that it's going to be turned into to law. They, they would obviously not rather have not rather have it uh be cabined in that way and they would in fact it, 
the language makes it much broader. The 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 ah, okay, what they're doing yes. much broader, and I, and I think that's where um, the the White House would actually like to have it more narrow in what it's supposed to be doing, uh, so that they don't run into conflicts of uh, authorities down the road. But, and this is um, this the organization was created basically in the wake of the Sony mess, and and my sense was um, there was a real sense we just didn't have our eye on what the North Koreans might be doing in cyber. Uh, oh, no, no. I would say that's not the case at all. What happened was that so from the NSC point of view, um, the intelligence community came back and said, we have low or medium confidence that it was X, Y, Z, right? And this kept happening. Sony was the final straw, but this happened several times. Uh-huh. And they kept coming to us and say, where different p- parts of the IC would come and say, we're, we, we, we have low or medium intelligence. Which is like saying we, we, have, we don't know. Right, and so then you get four different organizations saying that, and no one's willing to take responsibility over okay. over to say yes, this is definitely. Even it. though you could say as to all of them, if every if everybody if 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 you have a pretty good idea based on this evidence and a pretty good idea based on this evidence and a pretty good idea based on this evidence, uh, when you add them together, it's not just a pretty good idea; it's a much better than that idea. Right, absolutely. And we we kept trying to get them to say, you guys need to work together because if not, then right. it's the White House that has to integrate that, all this that's, right, that's doing that. And that's not the way it should be, right? Absolutely, positively not the way it should be. So you need an integration center in order to sit on top of this to be able to take that information and do the real integration of the analysis that's being done. So there's there's a real – this is where I think the real benefit to business comes from is if you link together these different pieces, which is if you have an information sharing and analysis organization that you are a member of, that – that as the legislation, most of the legislation uh, specifies, you go through DHS, you know, to 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 provide information to get information back. The Cyber Threat Integ- uh, Integration Intelligence Integration Center is the place where the return uh, can be gotten, which is here is the place where that can be a customer to that chain of what is available all through the intelligence community. Right. What can be declassified, and, and then what can we tell you about out. who's attacking you and uh, why? Right. Right. Uh, and in particular, what can be declassified and pushed back out to business right. as kind of the, the liability protection is good and it's, it's a means to an, to an end. This is really the benefit to business, which is, which is the reverse flow. So the data that you can't get yourself that might come to you through the intelligence community. Last inside baseball, uh, um, issue is there's a whole bunch of stuff in the House bill, one of the House bills, about how DHS is organized uh, uh, and uh, uh, ratifying the existence of all of their centers for uh, uh, sharing information out. Uh, um, my assumption, Alan, is that, you know, the uh, DHS is delighted to have all that uh, done and uh, isn't likely to complain about the fact that uh, um, it's being given a clear statutory authority for all the, the stuff that it's doing. Well, I think that the, that the department always likes to have a clear statutory authority for what it's doing. The department has offered, um, often suffered on the wheel of uh, congressionally directed reorganizations. And so um, the, the reorganization pieces are a more complicated element of this where you, you might find a little bit more um, disagreement among the circles of, of people you might ask. The question is, again, what's going to be the practical effect? What's, what's the import? Uh, what's the import for the department? What's the import for uh, federal, you know, .gov, uh, federal network security? What's the import for 
uh, the, con- the, the industry constituents on the outside who need to be the, you know, the beneficiaries of, of any way the department chooses to organize itself. All right. So, um, the bill likely passes sometime February, maybe January, uh, and then, uh, uh, there'll be a, some additional sharing, uh, likely coming out of uh, electronic service providers and, uh, then a whole bunch of chair shuffling in the government, to, or at least, uh, uh, people will sit more comfortably in those chairs. Uh, um, anything else? I, I had one other question. The, the bill authorizes the use of defensive measures, and it, it, it's pretty clear, was always pretty clear, apart from some whining from the uh, privacy groups, that a, a defensive measure is something that you operate inside your network to protect yourself. And I wondered, what legal liability protection do you need to operate defensive measures inside your network? Because I would have thought that on the whole, certainly under the CFAA, that's legal anyway. So that, what, what companies really wanted originally was to authorize countermeasures and some that yes. went beyond defensive measures so they could take action on other people's networks. Um, uh, I have, we're never going to sneak that in. I've it's never, better, better I've actually, that fight. I, I'm a supporter of that, but I've uh, never you can't heard slip it into the bill. I've never heard of a more unified opposition among every agency in the federal government in the five and a half oh, years yeah, that I was in there that's, that's, than to this issue. Yeah, right. That, but that's because they all think government does this better than the private sector, even if they're wrong. They they believe that. The, well, I, mean, I don't. Want, I'm not going to engage in that side <laughs> of it, but I will say that they came back with this idea of well, if you want authorize what you already do. Yeah. Well, it's already legal. We can call it defensive measures and we can do that. And so there was a work between the 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 Hill and the administration to come up with well what's already the boundaries here. Um some companies like that, some companies don't like that for exactly the reasons that you suggested. Um my personal view is I don't see any benefit to companies to saying what is already legal and putting it in a new statute. I think they're better off with it removed and operating under the existing law. It's a close call. It it does almost nothing because it says uh, uh, you can still do anything that's legal uh, and we're not authorizing anything that's not legal. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think the defensive measure uh, thing does very little. Uh, Maybe it it would have nudged at some uh, expansion of authority in its original draft, but even then it was pretty modest, and uh, 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 privacy groups have decided that they're going to uh, campaign uh, on this topic as well, and they actually made some progress uh, getting that uh, that provision neutered. So I guess we'll have to wait uh, for another day for the full legislative uh, airing and debate on the Baker Doctrine. Yeah, well, it, it, there's... That's not really the Baker Doctrine. The Baker Doctrine is our security sucks, but so does theirs, and we should use that to slam the people who are attacking I, I, us. But I do think this goes to what you're saying about the privacy advocates needing to have some other yeah. vent, some other supporters, and they did have some other supporters in this case, so I think that, that they do, this has more legs than the pushback on the, um, on, on the use limitations and other issues. So. Exactly. Okay. Um, well, we should probably close up because we're over time. Uh, uh, Ari, um, I usually give our guests an opportunity to talk about something they'll be doing or uh, some speeches they'll be giving. Uh, do you have any speeches uh, uh, set up yet? Um, I don't have anything to really promote um, as of right now. I think I'm doing some things in a couple months down the road. Um, but uh, I, you know, will continue to uh, 
work with a wide range of folks. A lot of people need help in this space, so um, happy to be in the private sector, working closely with companies and moving uh, things forward here. All right. Well, I am. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing your old boss, uh, Michael Daniel, uh, in public at the Council on Foreign Relations on Wednesday of this week, uh, uh, along with Chairman McCall. Uh, and uh, uh, it'll be an interesting opportunity for them to talk about what the uh, the prospects for resolving some of these uh, issues in the weeds might be. So that should be fun. Uh, uh, and I know Michael Daniel doesn't uh, appear often in public, so uh, uh, I will ask you after we finish up here if there's any questions I should ask that will be particularly uh, likely to, uh, to bring him out of his chair to say something uh, lively. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, thank you, Alan, for participating. Thank you, Ari. This was uh, a great tour of CISA, uh, which we'll be living with, it looks like, for the foreseeable future. Thanks also to Jason Weinstein and Maury Schenk. Uh, and before I finish up, I should uh, I should do a kind of mea culpa. Uh, uh, Eli Greenbaum sent me a message. Uh, he's a listener saying, I was jogging this morning listening to your fantastic podcast. I couldn't resist reading that part. Uh, and you mentioned that Israel was cutting off data transfers to the United States, which brought my jog to a quick halt. Uh, and he uh, he says it's not quite that the uh, the case the israeli data transfer regulations have a lot of ways in which you can transfer data he says uh, one of them was that you could do it um it, to any jurisdiction that was authorized to receive eu transfers and so the safe harbor enabled those transfers but just because the uh, uh safe harbor is no longer available doesn't mean that you can't uh ship uh, uh data from israel to the united states on one of the other standard exceptions uh which apparently are not being um, interpreted with quite the aggressiveness that uh, uh the german and uh, data protection authorities bring to it. So I appreciate that uh, correction from Eli. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I hope others will uh, send comments uh, to uh, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave messages by phone at 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 87 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we'll be joined by Adam Cozy of CrowdStrike talking about the great canon and by Mark Shuttleworth, the founder of Canonical, uh, the uh, uh, guardian of Ubuntu. Uh, uh, and we hope you'll join us for those uh, as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 